Okay, when you come to Exodus chapter 12, which is where we're at, we're looking at pages 53 and 54 this week. When you come to Exodus 12, you are now reaching sort of the summit of this first part of Exodus. We've marked off chapters 1 through 15 as our first section of the book of Exodus as we've been walking through the series that we call The Gospel According to Exodus. And chapter 12, you're now climbing, you're ascending to the summit, to the peak of where this story is going in these 15 chapters, in these first 15. By this point, you have Pharaoh, the most powerful man of the most powerful nation on the planet, and he has hardened his heart. We talked for an hour about that last week, so I won't say any more on that. Uh, hardened his heart, and now he's hardened and tightened his grip around the necks of these people called Israel. They are slaves to him, and he will not let them go. Over and over again, nine different times, Moses has entered into the palace and said, Pharaoh, let the people go so that they may serve Yahweh the Lord. And over and over again, he has hardened his heart, he has resisted, he has refused. And so if he will not open his hands, what we're seeing in the text in chapters 7 through 11 is that the Lord will pry them open. If he will not let them go freely, he will be forced to let them go. And so we walked in chapter 7 through 11 through blood and frogs and hail and gnats and locusts and all the others as God over and over and over again is going to rain down judgment on Egypt in order to save his people. When you get to Exodus 11... God is essentially going to roll up his sleeves one more time with one more final act of judgment. And when this one is done, it'll all be done. He's going to show himself, display his power one more time in Egypt, and now Pharaoh will get the message. Here's what he says in 11 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Do you hear what the Lord's saying? The Lord's saying, Moses, one more, just one more, and after that, everything's going to be done. If you read chapter 7 through 11, all the while, Pharaoh's been sort of negotiating with Moses about his terms, sort of giving in a little bit, but not the whole way. So if you go back and read 7 through 11, you'll see that Pharaoh will say, Moses, fine. These plagues are too much. Why don't you just sacrifice to the Lord your God in this land itself? Don't go anywhere. Just do it here. And Moses says, no. We, we sacrifice the things that you worship. Your people will stone us if we barbecue cows because you think of them as gods. And so we can't do that. Then Pharaoh will come back and negotiate some more and say, okay, why not just the men go? And, and leave the women and children here. And Moses says, no, we're going, all of us. Then he'll come back and say, why not you all go, just leave your flocks and your herds here. And Moses again says, Pharaoh, you don't understand. We are going, all of us, every man, every woman, every child, everything we own, we're taking it all when we leave. And God says, that's what's going to happen. In fact, he's going to let you go, God says. He'll drive you out. But by the time this is done, Moses, Pharaoh is going to be driving you out and all of you completely. Every last one of you, you're going to go with his blessing. You're going to go actually asking for his blessing. That, 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 I mean, Pharaoh asking you for a blessing. So, so that's what is coming. So if that's what's about to happen, if Pharaoh, who has been hard-hearted and tight-gripped this whole time, is going to generously let them go... 
then whatever this last act is, whatever this final judgment is, you can believe it's going to be big. It's going to be epic. I mean, what is it that's going to take to turn this hard heart around? And you get it in verse 4. So Moses said, this is 11 verse 4. Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Here's what God says. They won't let you go out of the land? Well, then I'm going to go out into the land. And I'm going to go out into Egypt, and I'm going to bring one last plague. And at the end of this plague, all the firstborn of the land will be dead. Every single one. God is going to send this final attack to destroy all the firstborn throughout the land. With one more act of judgment, he will rain down in Egypt and show everyone who he is. In chapter 7 through 11, we've been saying all the while God is sort of attacking the gods of Egypt through these plagues. In fact, in chapter 12, in the passage that... Uh, Charlie read for us. It says, through these plagues, I am executing judgment on these false gods. And remember, if you've been tracking with us, you saw that happen, right? The Nile is presented as this God happy, and what does God do? God turns it into blood. There's this frog goddess called Hecate, and God sends so many frogs that they're squashing them with every step. There's this cow god called Hathor, and the livestock in the field fall, the field fall dead. There's this sun god called Ra, and God wipes out the sun. For three days, such darkness, they can't see what's in front of their nose. God has been systematically destroying the competition, and now with the tenth one, he's going to wipe out the last one. See, Pharaoh himself believed that he was the incarnate of the sun god Ra. His son would be his successor, and the incarnate of the sun god Ra. He was god of Egypt. And now God is going to lay his hand on Pharaoh's own son. The future of Egypt, this invincible, untouchable God, is going to drop dead. In fact, so wide, so sweeping, so pervasive is this judgment that over and over again it talks about how wide its scope is going to be. In, in verse 5, it'll say, not the firstborn of Pharaoh is going to be spared, nor even the slave girl at the mill, not her son either. Verse 29, it's going to say, not Pharaoh's own son, nor even the captive in a dungeon. And that's the Bible's way of sort of saying, everybody, from the least little slave girl to the great Pharaoh, from the guy rotting in a jail cell to the prince in the palace, this last judgment is going to reach everybody. Nobody's immune. No one can escape. No one has a way out. In fact, this last plague is even more pronounced, more intense than all the others. God even says, I'm sending the destroyer into the land, and he will wipe everyone out. Till now, in the first nine, you've had sort of this creation reversal. If you remember, we talked about that a few times, where the created order is being reversed. But now, God is sending his destroyer, this messenger of death. Whatever that is, it's bad news for everybody. The destroyer is going to sweep through the land and bring down judgment on everyone. He's going to judge all the sinners of the land 
Everyone who deserves to be put to death for their sin, that plague is going to visit them all. And here's what's interesting about this last plague. So sweeping, so wide in scope and nature was this last plague that no one was immune. No one was safe. Not even Israel. Israel was as, in as much danger with this last plague as Egypt was. If you've been following through this story with us, you know that till now, God keeps making this distinction between Egypt and Israel, right? We've talked through that. Till now, there's this separation, even throughout the plagues. So the swarm of flies come, not a single fly buzzes over to Goshen, where Israel lives, right? The livestock drop dead, not one cow tips over in Goshen. The sun is darkened in Egypt, but it's bright like the new day in Israel. Israel is spared. They're constantly set apart. They're constantly distinguished. There's something distinct. And Israel is always safe while Egypt is always judged. But in this last one, as the destroyer is about to go out into the land and give sinners what they deserve, no one is immune. Now, there's going to be a distinction. You'll see it in verse 7, what you'd expect of chapter 11. That God says he is going to draw a distinction between Egypt and Israel. But here's the question. As the destroyer comes to bring down judgment upon the land and give sinners what they deserve, what is it about Israel that's going to distinguish them from their neighbors? What mark do they have? What do they have that when the destroyer comes to a home, he's going to know not this one, but this one, or this one, but not that one? What mark do they have? What, what about them is going to set them apart from their neighbors? And what you learn from the text is Israel has nothing in themselves to set them apart from their Egyptian neighbors. Imagine you were an Israelite through these plagues. What would it produce in your heart if you're watching God pick apart your Egyptian neighbors, but all the while keep you safe? That God is going to town on the Egyptians, but God is protecting with great care you and your people. Would there not be a temptation in your heart to say, there must be something about us that God sees that's lacking there, that God is treating us with such kindness and special favor that he's not our neighbors. There must be some inherent worth, some intrinsic quality, something good in us that God sees that distinguishes us, that sets us apart from our neighbor, that God keeps visiting us with mercy and visiting them with judgment. There's got to be some quality, some goodness, some worth, something special about us, right? The church can often act that same way. We can act like we're in and everyone else is out and there must be something good that God saw in us that God favored about us. Now I want you to hear this isn't a leap that I'm suggesting that this might have been in their heart because God will later warn Israel after they've gone out of Egypt when God is bringing them into the promised land and God's going to town again on all their enemies and sparing them. Here's what God says to Israel. Deuteronomy 9. This is later, but here's what he says to them. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness. 
that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Where it is, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. Here's what God says. When God does all these things and sets you apart, don't say in your heart that it's because of some righteousness God saw in me. Something that set me apart from my neighbor. Some quality in me, some uprightness in my heart that he shows favor to me and condemnation to another. God says, listen, there was nothing in you. I didn't see anything in you that I saw in another. Or I didn't lack seeing something in another that I saw in you. They're getting judgment because they deserve it. But if you get mercy, it has nothing to do with yourself. What's striking about this last one is that Israel is in as much trouble and in as much danger as Egypt was. Right? The destroyer is coming to judge sinners, those who deserve it, and Israel deserves judgment just as much as Egypt does. Listen, you would think that if God is going to come down on the land, he'd be able to see something in his people that would tell the destroyer, don't visit this house with judgment, visit it with mercy. Right? We know the scriptures say that God sees past the surface into the heart. There's got to be something God sees in the Israelites that make them worthy of mercy and not judgment. Something, God who can see everything, has to have seen some distinguishing mark in them. And yet that's exactly the problem. God sees past the surface. And God sees to the heart. And when he looks into the heart of Israel, he finds that there's nothing better there than in the heart of Egypt. Nothing of more worth, nothing of greater value, no intrinsic quality about them. In fact, friends, do you know that Israel, while they were in Egypt, was steeped and stooped in idolatry as much as the Egyptians were? That they worshiped the same gods God was attacking through the plagues just as much as the Egyptians did. In Joshua, later, in generations later, Joshua will say to the people this, Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Do you hear that? Joshua saying to the people, Listen, stop worshiping the gods that your fathers did while they were still in Egypt. Or again, centuries later, the prophet Ezekiel will come. And listen to what Ezekiel says. On that day, the Lord swore to them, that I would bring them out of the land of Egypt into this great land, verse 7. And I said to them, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, verse 8. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. That was new to me. I always figured that the Israelites were the poor people who were suffering in Egypt. And yet the scriptures are saying that they were in idolatry as much as the Egyptians were. In fact, in Ezekiel 23, the prophet will use some of the most graphic, sexually explicit language to describe the whoring nature of Israel. And how they had the Lord and yet continually prostituted themselves out to other gods. 
as a warning to all people who stray from the Lord. So here's the picture I want you to imagine. This one author named Mike Wilkerson wrote this. He said, picture the destroyer going throughout the land of Egypt. He comes to one home, and it's an Egyptian home. He looks in through the window. He sees the false gods and the idols through the window. And he goes in, and he takes the life of the firstborn. He goes to a second home in Egypt. It's an Egyptian home. Looks up the window, sees the idols there, goes in, brings the judgment that they deserve. And the destroyer goes to a third home, an Israelite home. Looks at the window and sees the same idols. What mark do these people have that's going to distinguish them? That's going to set them apart for mercy rather than visit them with the wrath and judgment that they deserve? What mark do they possess that the destroyer will know don't bring down judgment on this house? They have nothing in themselves. Nothing of personal value, worth, intrinsic goodness in themselves. Nothing to show God that they should be visited with mercy rather than judgment. If they're going to be spared, they need a mark that they don't have. If they're going to receive mercy, they're going to be needing to be distinguished by something they don't possess. And friends, the good news of the scriptures is that what was required, God himself provided. That what was lacking to distinguish us, to set us apart, God himself gave. That what was needed, God himself provided. God gave them a mark, something to set them apart. God gave them something to distinguish them and make them objects of mercy rather than objects of wrath. And that's what you read in 12 verse 1. This is what it says. I'll read you 12, 21. It's a summary of chapter 12. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. What's going to set them apart? What's going to be the mark that they don't possess but that they need? Well, God says, here's what you need to do. You need to take a lamb. In verse 5, he gives the specifications. It's to be a male lamb, it's to be one year old, it's to be without blemish, it's to be innocent, it's to be perfect, it's to be spotless. You're not getting some crippled lamb from your flock. You're getting the best one you have. One year old, it's clean, it's pure, it's perfect. You grab that lamb and then what's told is on the 10th day of the month, you bring that lamb into your house. For four days, your family will feed it, care for it, provide for it, wash it. Your children will play with it. On the 14th day, four days later, the head of the household will grab that lamb along with all the heads of the household of all of Israel. And at twilight, you will pull back its head. You will cut its throat. Blood will gush out and the white wool will be drenched in its blood. Then you collect a pool of that blood into a basin. And you grab a hyssop branch and you start applying that blood on the doors of your homes, 
on the frames so that when the destroyer comes to your home, you who are covered by this blood hide inside while the wrath of God passes by. Now what is all that about? If you have a background, hear me, if you have a background in Christianity, if you grew up in the church, you hear that and you don't blink. That's just a good Sunday school that you've heard. You accept that without any problems. It might be a little peculiar, but you just take it. If you didn't grow up in church, if you don't have a background in Christianity, you hear that and you go, is that really what you guys believe? Right? Do you really believe the destroyer was about to come into the land and what was to protect you from the destroyer was a white, fluffy, little Mary's lamb? Right? That's what's supposed to protect you from the destroyer bringing about judgment on the land. How is any of that supposed to work? Well, the scriptures say, listen, it's because this thing was acting like a sign. Like a sign. Verse 13 of chapter 12 will say this. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here's what the blood was. The blood was simply a sign. A sign that death had taken place here. And death need not take place anymore. That blood has been shed here and no more blood needs to be shed here. That judgment was deserving of this home. Judgment has been given to this home. So no more judgment is needed here. Right? The, the sign was supposed to say this. Look, if what you deserve is death for sin, then death has happened here. The blood was supposed to be a sign that says something acted as a substitute and bore the judgment that this home deserved. And here is the blood. And the blood was supposed to sort of cry out to the destroyer, visit not this home in judgment, but pass over it, because judgment has already come to this home. The blood that was required has been shed over this home and over these people. I will make some connections, but, but if you're a thinking person, here's what you've got to be thinking. How is that really supposed to work? Right? It might be a good symbol, it might be quite sentimental, but it certainly can't be effectual. Does that make sense? It might be a good sign, it might be a good symbol, it might tug at your heartstrings a little, but certainly you can't believe that some lamb's blood is going to take care of the sin of people. Think of that in the real world, right? In, in the face of injustice, in the face of murder, in the face of crime, are you really supposed to believe that some lamb's blood takes care of the sin of that people? For example, last week, many of you were at Bombay Teen Challenge's event. They showed this video just describing the story that these women were going through, a very moving one. And you begin to see how dark the world can really be. You're tucked away in the safety of certain places. The, the world is very dark. Told the stories of some women who were innocent and were promised a job like many of your mothers and fathers were. Boarded a train headed for some job, ended up in a brothel in Bombay. And then were forcibly raped until they were broken and became prostitutes. And then were forced into slavery. Now here's my question. Could I walk into Bombay and tell one of those women, listen, here's the person that did wrong to you. But I just killed a lamb. 
and its blood has been shed. And so everything that they did to you has been absolved. That sin is taken away because I slaughtered a lamb and its blood has been drained. See what I mean? It's a good sign. You can't possibly believe that it's effectual, that it actually takes care of the sin. What we need is, to, is, is something better, right? And that impossibility of lamb's blood to take away sin is exactly what the New Testament says. In Hebrews 10, verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so what the scriptures are pushing you to, to say is we need something better. What we need is better blood or a better sacrifice or a better lamb. And that's the gospel. The gospel is the good news that what we needed, the better lamb, God provided through Jesus Christ. A blood that works. A sacrifice that is effectual. And a, a, a blood that actually deals with sins. A blood that for all who hide under it and covered by it, the wrath of God passes over and the blood of Jesus Christ cries out, visit not this person in wrath, but show them mercy. Here, this is, the, this is the truth. You will either face the judgment of God by yourself, or you will hide under the blood of Christ and recognize judgment was meant for you. If you stand alone, you will face the judgment of Christ and of God. But if you hide under his blood, if you are covered by his blood, then that word, that blood speaks a word of mercy rather than judgment for you. The good news of the gospel is thousands of years after the Passover, on exactly the day when people would have brought in lambs to Jerusalem, they keep it on the 10th day, on the 14th day they sacrifice it. When they would have brought in lambs to Jerusalem, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then on the day when the families would have gathered in homes to celebrate the Passover, to remember the wrath of God passing over them, the mercy of God visiting them, the sacrifice given for them, the blood shed for them, the lamb that they consumed its flesh as a sign of their salvation. When all of that was happening, Jesus gathered with his disciples. And Jesus on that night altered the meal forever. And he said, the better lamb that you needed, that's me. And so he took bread and he gave it to them and he said, this is now my body. Eat. Just like Jews for thousands of years would have consumed the flesh of the lamb that had died for their salvation. So now Jesus says, you eat of me. And then Jesus gave them a cup to drink and said, this is my blood. Drink. Just as for thousands of years they would have remembered the blood of the lamb shed for them for their salvation. So now Jesus says, you are to drink. Not because there's any worth in us, any intrinsic quality about us, nothing that God sees in us that he should pass over us in wrath and visit us in mercy, solely because we plead the blood of Jesus, because we hide under his sacrifice and substitute for us. And on that night, Jesus fulfills what the Passover was, and for thousands of years since, 
has altered it forever so that week after week, just like Jews would regularly remember the Passover, now Jesus has given this new meal that every single Sunday we come to and celebrate. He's given us communion so that as we take this bread and drink this cup, we experience the new exodus and the new Passover. We remember afresh that God passed over us in wrath and visited us in mercy. Here's what I want to do. We're going to close. I want to give you quickly five words on communion. And I see the look of panic on your face. Sibby told me that 30 minutes into speaking, I'll go, and now we're up to point two. And everybody's like, oh my God. All right, five words, words very quickly about communion. I heard the words. All right, five words quickly on communion. One, things that I see in the Passover meal that I want to remind you as you come to the table. As soon as I finish talking, we come to communion. I don't need you taking notes. What I do want is for your soul to go, I can't wait to come to that table. If all of this is true, I need that meal. First, the Passover meal was a family meal, right? In verse 3 and 4, we don't have to look at it now. Households would come together and celebrate the Passover. It was never one Jew off to the corner eating this meal, celebrating his own salvation. It was always a family who came together because God had passed over them. And so the same way, communion is a family meal. You don't just go off to your house and grab crackers and juice and eat them yourselves. You eat this with the family of God. This table has been called the Eucharist, remembering the Thanksgiving, that's what it means. It's been called the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. It's been called the Covenant Meal. It's also been called Communion. Because the Word is supposed to remind us, this is about a meal we have with God and we have with one another. So as you come to this table, it's right for you to close your eyes and look to the Lord. It's also right for you to look around. And go, these are the brothers and sisters whom Jesus has saved, whom he has incorporated me into a community with. This is my family that he passed over. These are the brothers and sisters I will eat and drink forever with. <clears throat> it's a family meal. And so that's why it's right for you as you come to this table to examine your heart to make sure that you're right with God and with one another. It will not do for you to say, me and you are okay, though I hate this person, that person, and the other. No, you're coming to one bread, as one body, as one family. And so if you've got conflict with God, you resolve that before you come. And if you've got conflict with another, you determine, resolve that you will fix that as well before you come. This is a family meal. Second, it's also a sign. In verse 13, remember, this blood shall be a sign. What's a sign? A sign is an outward, tangible, visible thing that points to an invisible, glorious reality. Say that again. A sign is a tangible, visible, outward expression of an invisible but glorious inward reality. I'll give you an example. I don't wear much jewelry. I don't have rings. I don't have chains. I don't have bracelets. I am Indian Pentecostals would love me, right? I got none of that. The one thing I have and I love is this ring, right? My wedding ring. The only thing that I have, the only thing that I wear, I love this thing. 
Last week, Joe told me how he was swimming in the ocean and lost his ring, and for an hour was swimming everywhere, trying to surf through the bottom to find it. I lost this in a room, tore that room apart till I found it. Why? This thing is barely worth $100. I bought it. I was cheap then, cheap now, right? <laughs> it, 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 it could be replaced in three seconds. But what this means to me is, is priceless. This ring represents my marriage. Apart from Jesus, represents the greatest commitment I've ever made in my life. The greatest commitment anyone's made to me in their life. It represents promises I've made, promises made to me. It represents love, obligations. It, it, it commits me to something. This ring reminds me, I can't just go eat and provide for myself, defend myself. I, I've got someone else I'm forever bonded to. It's a, it's a sign. It's an emblem. It's a token. It's not the real thing, but it points to this glorious reality. And before Jesus left the earth, he gave his bride, his betrothed, his loved ones, a sign, a token, an emblem. And said, here's a sign for you to hold on to, something tangible that you could touch and experience. Something as simple as a ring, something as simple as bread and juice. And said, when you take this, you remember that there is a, a mountain of glorious realities behind it. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. This meal reminds me and you that we're in covenant. We're in relationship. You have obligations to me and I have obligations to you. I've made promises to you. You've made promises to me. We are committed, connected. That simple sign points to this glorious reality. That's what you come to at this table. It is the Lord freshly renewing his vows to you. You freshly renewing your vows to the Lord. It is the Lord speaking over you again his love for you. As you take the bread and the cup, it is Christ all over again saying, this is the sign of my love for you. And you're to be renewed and refreshed and reminded of your relationship with the Lord as you come to the table. Let me say one more word about the sign. If I lost this ring, would one of you husbands say, no problem, you can have mine? That would make no sense, right? If, if one of you came to me and said, you, you can have mine, that would actually turn my stomach to even think about it, right? That would be a repulsive thought because it, it represents a truth that's not there. I, I haven't made promises to the woman that that ring represents. I'm not, I don't love that woman. That woman does not love me. It would be gross for me to take that sign, right? That's why the communion is fenced. Even in the Passover meal, it's limited to the covenant members of Israel. Not because they're trying to be exclusivistic, but because this sign would mean nothing to you. It would actually represent a lie. Which is why Jesus says, if you're not in covenant with him, don't come to the table. Receive Christ first so that the sign would mean something. Otherwise, it is as offensive to Jesus as it would be to you. If my wife's ring was lost on the floor and another woman took it and started wearing it, that would not impress me. That would be an offense to me. That would be horrific to me. It, it represents a lie. There's no reality that that sign would point to. And so in the same way, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't love Jesus, Jesus doesn't call you to the table. 
Because that sign would point to nothing. And it would communicate a lie that is not true in your soul, that you don't love the Lord, and you haven't experienced yet His love. And so come to the Lord, and then come to the sign. It's a sign for us. Third, let me say quickly, it's a memorial. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Year after year after year, the Jews would come back and experience this sign, this meal, as a memorial to remember afresh and anew what the Lord had done for them. In the same way Jesus says, do this, what? In remembrance of me. When you come to this table, you're remembering again the salvation of the Lord. In this chapter, he even says, you're going to do this and your children are going to ask about it. They're going to say, what's the meaning of this? And you're to communicate to them. This sign reminds us that the Lord spared our houses but visited Egypt in judgment. In the same way, we don't bring our children to the communion table, but they're asking, they're watching, and we're longing for the day when this reality becomes true in their heart, and then we bring them to the table and we eat and drink with them. Till then, you explain this to them as well. But I, I want to say this about the word memorial. It's not a dead, lifeless memorial. It's not like laying flowers at a gravesite and remembering someone. No, Jesus is alive. Jesus is present at this meal. Jesus hosts this meal. Jesus administers this meal. When you come, you're receiving something real. You're not just doing a, a word of memory. Corinthians will say, don't you know you're participating with Christ? You're receiving blessing to your soul. You're being nourished in your faith as you come. You're receiving fresh grace as you come. Fourth, let me say this, it's also a feast. Did you hear that? Verse 14 said, This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast. Hear this on my road. I feel like I have not led well in this area. I'm not generally a very expressive guy, and so I feel like sometimes my quietness and somberness and seriousness can be lead you to think that communion has to be this somber, quiet, sober reality. When you hear the word feast, the somber, sober, are those the words that you think of? This table is a feast. Now, will there be times when you'll come somber, sober, serious? Absolutely. Will we always take it seriously? Absolutely. Will we come to this confidently but carefully, lest we eat and drink judgment on ourselves? Absolutely. But nonetheless, it's a feast for you. Think of the graciousness of God. How many times do you think the slaves in Egypt had feasted? How many times had Pharaoh put out a table with food and drink for them to enjoy? And yet God is going to say, listen, if I'm your new master, then what it means to be a part of my kingdom, what impresses me, what delights me, is not just you working to the bone every day. I want you to feast. What kind of God is that? These people had only known that the thing that their master required was work. And now their new master says, I want you to feast. In fact, I command you to feast. He's going to teach them what it means to be his people. And part of that's going to be, I need you to learn how to celebrate. I need you to learn how to feast. What do you think of when you think of feast? When I think of feast, I think of last Friday night at Han Dynasty. Right? <laughs> Fourteen of us went to Han Dynasty. 
right? We get there, we were such a loud, large crowd, they brought us into a basement by ourselves. <laughs> a whole table with just us, they gave us music we could play, we had Dennis's horrible music playing, right? And then they asked us if we wanted menus, they didn't even give us menus, they brought us what's called the tasting menu. We sat there, 14 of us around the table, with so much, I mean, they just kept bringing food out. We didn't even know what they were bringing, just entree after entree after entree. These, these entrees were met with loud cheers as we were screaming, <laughs> celebrating. Loud food, loud laughter, too much food, more than enough drink, everything. I mean, good friends, good food, good drink, good conversation, good laughter, a feast. I got home at one o'clock, woke up shining because I had to tell her, right? She's groggy-eyed and I go, you gotta do, we gotta do this again. You gotta come, you gotta see this. It was unbelievable. There's an eagerness, I can't wait till the next time. That's what that's supposed to be like. You're telling me my sins are forgiven? Not just he died because I'm scum. I'm really forgiven, accepted, clean. Everything's right between me and God like we're friends at a table. Like God's sitting down with me like those 14 guys were and we're enjoying one another and I'm enjoying him with others that I love and these people's sins have been forgiven and I'm going to spend life with them in eternity with them and we're going to eat and drink forever. A feast. That's what the Lord has prepared for you. And then lastly, last one, they receive this ready to receive salvation. Right? In one of the verses it says... They ate this with sandals on their feet, a staff in their hand, clothes, because they weren't just supposed to sit and eat around forever. They were about to spring into the salvation that this sign was pointing to. Because when this feast was done, they were going to walk out into a good and promised land. And so there's a sense where they ate this with their eyes already looking forward to the land that they would inherit. Right? This feast, as good as it was, was just a signpost saying, there's a good land waiting for you. There's a salvation that's about to be yours. So when we come to communion, our eyes are already looking forward. Yesterday passed, none of us got raptured, but <laughs> there should be a sense in which your heart is going, I hope this is the day. And if it's not today, I hope tomorrow's the day. And I hope he comes. Because this meal is saying, there's a day coming when we will eat and drink with Jesus. I may have said this before, but diaspora Jews, Jews outside of Israel, would so long to be back in their own homeland and enjoy this meal, this Passover meal, that often the diaspora Jews, when they would finish the meal, they would raise their glasses and say, next time in Jerusalem. Because their hope is, by the time we celebrate this Passover, let's hope it's in our land. A church heard that and they modified it for themselves so that at the end of every communion they would raise their hands and say, next time with Christ. That should be our heart. That as you finish this meal today, you're hoping before next Sunday comes, I hope this meal happens with Jesus in heaven. Right? We're looking ahead to the day when we will eat and drink forever with him. That's what Christ has given you at this table. So now I hope you are ready to come and to feast on him. He has provided for you a mark, covered you with a blood, given you his body you did not deserve, setting you apart, visiting you in mercy rather than in wrath. So come and remember all that. Let's pray.
Our Lord, we give you thanks for the gospel because it is true. What was lacking in us, you provided. What was required in us, you gave. What we needed, you met. We thank you, Lord. There is nothing special about me that you should visit me with grace or look upon me with pardon or mercy. But the only thing that sets me apart is your own blood, your own sacrifice, Jesus Christ covering me, crying out mercy rather than wrath. I pray that you would move in the hearts of all here today. If any are here who do not know Jesus Christ, let them be reminded that there needs to be nothing in them that God should look on them and count them worthy. In fact, their lack of qualification makes them a great candidate for mercy. They need only to believe. They need only to repent. They need only to trust in you. They need not do anything, for you have done everything for them. And I pray today that they would receive you, that one day they would receive your sign as well. For all who are here who know you, I pray that you would bring fresh gratitude and an eagerness to come and to remember Christ. And as we receive these signs, we would be refreshed, renewed, and receive again the glorious reality to which these signs point. Do more than we ask and new to ask in Jesus' name.